time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. I, uh, I, uh, uh, my wife, is Holly here? I think she's over at New Life Next. So anyway, she, she broke my car this week. So she's not here. I'm going to blame it on her. She was driving. And uh, my transmission went out. So that's a bad deal. So I had to go, you know, get her and get the car and had to get it towed and all that other stuff. And I was kind of like, oh, man, this is not in the budget, <laughs> you know. And uh, it was so funny. And I, I posted a little bit of this on my Facebook. But, you know, I called my dad and just, you know, was talking to him and, you know, let him know that, you know, my transmission went out. And he's like, well, John, if you've truly given everything to the Lord, then ask him what he wants to do with his minivan. You know, and uh, isn't that the truth, though? When we give God our lives, he's going to provide everything. You know, it's not ours, it's his, right? And I think this is kind of the aspects that, that is beginning to surround David. David is in the stronghold. We're going to be talking tonight about David's mighty men, those men that surrounded David. David's in the stronghold, man. He's like, he's like, he's like in, in, in the cave, or, or, or he's, just, he's got a little fortress around him, and God begins to provide for him. He begins to send men to his side at this place. And we're going to read just a little bit about it. Let me start. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 11 if you want to turn to it, but I think it will also be on the screen. 1 Chronicles chapter 11, starting with verse 10. Let me just read uh, some of this to you. It's going to be nine verses. Let me read it to you. There's some incredible stuff going on here. These are the leaders of David's mighty warriors. Together with all Israel, they decided to make David their king just as the Lord had promised concerning Israel. And here's the record of David's mightiest warriors. The first was Jashobim. Everybody say Jashobim. The Hakmonite. He kind of sounds like a warrior, a Hakmonite. That's, that's pretty cool. He was the leader of the three, the mightiest warriors among David's men. He once used his spear to kill 300 enemy warriors in a single battle. Now, this is funny because I read a lot of commentaries on this. And back in 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's the same account here. And it says that Joshua Beam killed 800 warriors in a single battle. And through reading the commentaries, they believe that the 300 was just a scribal error. You know, because of some of the other numbers in there. And I can explain it all to you. But, but you know, you could just say that he killed 800 men. Pretty awesome. All right, so... Where was I? Okay. Next in rank among the three was Eleazar, son of Dodai. Everybody say Dodai. I just think that's a funny word to say. A descendant of Ahola. He was, the, he was with David in the battle against the Philistines at Pass Damon. The battle took place in a field full of barley, and the Israelite army fled. But Eleazar and David held their ground. Two men, when the rest of the army fled, held their ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord saved them by giving them a great victory. Once when David was at the rock near the cave of Adullam, the Philistine army was camped in the valley of Raphium. The three, who were among the 30, an elite group of David's fighting men, went down to meet him there. David was staying in the stronghold at the time, and the Philistine detachment had occupied the town of Bethlehem. This is the story that we're going to focus on tonight. David remarked longingly to his men, Oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. So the three 
broke through the Philistine lines, drew some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem, and brought it back to David. But David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. God forbid that I should drink this, he exclaimed. This water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David did not drink it. These are the examples of the exploits of the three. Then you move down just a little bit further. It talks about David, the 30 mighty men around David. So there were the three, and then there were the 30, which were actually total number of 37. So there was 37 of them uh, that, are, that have surrounded David in the stronghold, in this place of hiding, because he was hiding from Saul, waiting for God to promote him, waiting for his time to be king. And you go a little further after chapter 11, and you jump into chapter 12, you find out that some other men defected defected from Israel's army, to join David. And they were great. It says all of them were expert archers. And they could shoot arrows and sling stones with their left hand as well as their right hand. So, I mean, these, these other guys came and joined him. There's 23 of them total defected and came and joined David. Later on in chapter 11, just, just below that, you've got the Gadite defectors. Now, these guys were cool. These guys were awesome. These Gadite defectors. It says some brave and experienced warriors... From the tribe of Gab, Gad, not Gab. There'd be girls' names if they're from the tribe of Gab. No, I'm just kidding. I had to throw that in there. Okay. Some brave and experienced warriors from the tribe of Gad also defected to David while he was at the stronghold in the wilderness. They were expert with both shield and spear, as fierce as lions and as swift as a deer on the mountain. And it goes through who they were. Then it says, these warriors from Gad were army commanders. The weakest among them could take a hundred, could take on a hundred regular troops. The strongest among them could take on a thousand. These guys were stinking awesome. These guys were incredible. So these are the men that God has provided for David. He surrounded David in the stronghold with these men. He, he, and now these guys, these guys are pretty tough, right? These are tough guys, and you got to be tough to lead men like these. And David was. See, David, David had already killed a lion, he had killed a bear, and he had defeated Goliath as a young boy. David was tough. And God surrounded David with these passionate men who also had accomplished some pretty incredible exploits of their own. So what I want to do, I want to just focus on that story. I want to focus on the story of, the, of David's mighty three Sitting around a campfire. David, I mean, they're friends. David's not just commander. They're his friends. Sitting around, and David just kind of nonchalantly, he kind of asks, man, I want want some water from that well at Bethlehem. It's so good. And the three don't say anything. But they go, break through the enemy lines, get the water, and bring it back to David. That's the story we're going to focus on tonight. When we read in the scripture, and at the end of that passage, it says, such were the exploits. Such were the exploits of the David's mighty men. I get this picture of amazing accomplishments achieved by these guys and all those that surrounded David. It's like these guys were part Navy SEAL, Green Beret, Army Ranger, and Bear Grylls all rolled into one. I mean, they were just like super warriors right here. I mean, they were, the, they, were, they were the warrior of the warriors. I mean, it was, they were great. Okay, so these guys, these guys, they were so good, they would have laughed at the programmers of Call of Duty. They would have saw that game and they would have laughed. They said, hey, just put me in that game with a battle axe. I'll take out that tank. 
You know, that's how good these guys were. So when I begin to look at these guys, there's some things that really stand out. One of the things that stands out to me is that they were passionate men. They were passionate. There were many things in their lives that they were passionate enough about to die for. They were passionate. You know, Louis Ingalls said, if you don't have a passion worth dying for, you have nothing worth living for. Passion is the object of somebody's intense interest or enthusiasm. So these mighty men that joined David, Scripture says, in his stronghold, basically his hideout, his fortress, had a great passion for their leader, for what God had already anointed, for what God's plan was, and for what God wanted to carry out. So when I read these names, I want you to tell me what they were passionate about, okay? Interact with me here. Michael Jordan. Basketball. Peyton Manning. Wayne Gretzky. That's good. A couple people knew that. Derek Jeter. How about Mother Teresa? Serving the poorest of the poor. How about Beethoven? Good. How about Steve Irwin? Crocodile hunter. What was he passionate about? Conservation. Yeah, crocodiles and other things. You know, I was really sad when he died. <laughs> I was actually on vacation on an island when that came on the news and I saw that he died. I was like, oh, I love his show. Okay, let's move on. Rosa Parks. Equality, our civil rights will do. But how about Martin Luther King, Jr.? Civil rights. How about Lady Gaga and Katy Perry? They're passionate about trash. They're passionate about trash and being trashy. How about Ian Bounds and Zinzendorf? Prayer. Brandon got it. Brandon got it. Prayer. How about Billy Graham? Evangelism, that's right. Let me ask a couple of you. Grab a mic here. What's your name? Caleb. Caleb? What are you passionate about? Playing football. Football? Okay. That's very good. Tell them your name. I am Caleb also. <laughs> <laughs> what are you passionate about, Caleb? Um, I would say film. Film? Yeah, film. Like any film or it's just like, like the little rolls like, of film? No. <laughs> like, what? like, you know, you go to, you go like. Oh, like, oh, Zoe, what are you passionate about? I'm passionate about music and art. Okay, good, good. What are you passionate about? Uh, swimming and God. Swimming and God. Come on. Come on. What are you passionate about? Um, dance. Dance. Okay, that's good. That's good. A couple more here. What are you passionate about? Basketball and the thorn. Basketball and what? The thorn. The thorn? Sweet, sweet, sweet. Brady, what are you passionate about? Passionate about Pine Creek. Pine Creek? All right. It's good. It's a young man that's got a vision for a school. So you can tell, when you know somebody, and, and those students that I asked, their friends probably could have told me what they were passionate about. I mean, they told all of you, but the ones that were closest to them, they knew what they were passionate about. They would know because they live life with them. They're around them. They know what really gets, you know, their blood flowing, what they get excited about, what they get passionate about. 
You see, if we're going to be like David's mighty men, and we're going to accomplish great exploits for the kingdom, we're going to have to possess a great passion for God and a great passion for the lost. Two passions we cannot live without. You've heard, all the, phrase, you've heard the phrase that love the sinner and hate the sin, right? But I'm telling you, you have to have this deep, intense urgency inside of you that creates this deep-rooted passion for those who don't know Christ, haven't heard about Christ, and are dying and go to hell if, if you don't do something about it. You've got to have these two passions in your life. You know, I had a mentor, I've, I think I've preached on this before, but I had a mentor that told me once as I was sitting and just, you know, talking with him as, as I did many times. He said, John, because of your sin, people will go to hell. That's heavy, isn't it? But it's true. Through high school, I didn't follow Jesus. I knew what was right. I was a preacher's kid, for crying out loud. I grew up knowing what was right. But I rejected it. And throughout high school, I didn't live it out. Went to my 10-year high school class reunion. Guess how many Christians there were? None. Not one. You know, I don't, like, hold that or carry that inside of me, but, man, I know I'm partly to blame for that. Because if I would have known and if I would have stood up for what is right, I know there would be other Christians in my class. It was so funny. Today, actually, I was looking, and there's one girl that always kind of, from my high school class, that always kind of, you know, likes my stuff or whatever. And I was looking, and she's a Christian school teacher. I was like, praise the Lord. And I've been praying. I've been praying for my class from high school. We've got our, I don't even know if I should say it. We've got our 20-year class reunion coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Give me something to throw at Brandon. How about this stick? <laughs> you know, I'm praying. I'm just praying that God gets a hold of my class. I'm praying that God gives me opportunities and second chances to share the gospel, to share the truth and share what's right with them. So because of your sin, people will go to hell. See, basically you can reword that. You can say, because of my rejection of God, others will reject God. Because I embrace God, others will embrace God. Kind of see the connection there? See, you have influence that you don't even know about. You know, I used to hate it when my mom, my mom would come to me, John, you have to set the example. You got to do this, this, and this. John, set the example. I used to hate that. I'm like, Mom, I don't want to lead. I don't want to set the example. Well, what I didn't understand was I was doing it no matter what I did anyway. I was going to influence. No matter what, you're going to influence. It just depends on whether it's a good influence or a bad influence. You're going to influence. So the passion that you possess will ignite the people around you and change them forever, for, forever. Whether that passion is good or bad, it's going to change people around you. You will change people around you forever. For the rest of your life, people are going to be changed because of you. And you have a decision to make. The people that you're going to influence, are you going to influence them towards the cross or away from the cross? That's the decision that you'll have to make. Another thing I see about these men as I'm reading that passage is they, these were men that were willing to sacrifice. 
They were willing to sacrifice. I mean, we want to make it, and we want to make, it, uh, we want to make a difference in our world, but it seems that the level of difference we make always depends on how much we're willing to sacrifice. The level of difference that we make always depends on how much we're willing to sacrifice. And these mighty men possess some pretty amazing characteristics. And one of the greatest was their willingness to sacrifice everything, not hold anything back. They hear David in this story, nonchalantly express his desires to them, his friends. Man, I would love some of that fresh water from the well at the gates of Bethlehem. Now imagine David. David probably gets up and he does, you know, something. I mean, imagine they're sitting around this campfire. Pretend there's a fire. They're sitting on Home Depot buckets around the campfire. You know, friends. You know, the other 30 are probably out and spread around, but just these, you know, these, these four. His three mighty warriors and him, they're sitting around this campfire, and they're friends, and, you know, they're, they're talking about different things, probably some important issues, probably just some of the other stuff, just shooting the breeze. David just kind of sidely remarks, nonchalantly remarks, man, guys, wouldn't it be great to have some of that water at the well of Bethlehem? I mean, at this point in time, there were Philistines. Philistines had taken over Bethlehem. It was behind enemy lines at the time. And they're sitting around this fire, and David's just, you know, shooting it up with his friends, and he, and he says that, he expresses his desire for some of that water. And these men, these men get up. They probably don't say a word to each other. They just, just kind of glance at each other. They know what, you, what each other's thinking. I mean, come on. They've been living life, fighting side by side. They know each other. They're like brothers. They probably just glanced at each other. David probably got up, went to do something. They get up and they slip away. They slip away into the night. And this well, like I said, was behind enemy lines. And in verse 18, it kind of describes it this way. It describes that David's mighty men who slipped away, they broke through the enemy lines to get this water for their beloved leader. Scripture doesn't say that they slipped through the enemy lines. It says that they broke through the enemy lines. So they weren't like sneaking, you know, over to the Philistines, through the Philistine outpost. I mean, they weren't like, you know, ah, you know, running around, crawling. I mean, this is, well, that's bright. This is not what they were doing. That's not what Scripture says. They weren't slipping through enemy lines. Oh, man, that's too much activity. My shoe came untied. They weren't slipping through enemy lines. They broke through enemy lines. That's a difference there. That's a big difference there. I mean, there was fighting going on here. There was fighting at the risk of death taking place as these three men had this deep desire and passion and love for their leader and wanted to give him the water that he longed for, broke through the enemy lines, got the water from the well, and brought it back to David in the stronghold. I mean, there was... There was blood on these guys' hands. I mean, David sees the men return, bloody, and he's deeply moved in his heart, deeply moved. And David, in this moment, he takes the fresh water from the well that these men risked their lives for, and he pours it on the ground. He pours it out as an offering before the Lord. And I think in David's response, we see three characteristics about these men that were priceless to David. Number one, their great love for him. Number two, their loyalty to David. 
And number three, their willingness to sacrifice everything for their friends. Do you have friends in your lives that you're willing to sacrifice everything for? I've got three or four just amazingly close friends that I've lived life with for years. I would do anything to protect them and their families. And those friendships, they're rare. And when you get one, when you find those types of friendships, man, you hold on to them. Because they're rare in this world today. So in David's heart, he was thinking, man, I will put myself. In his heart, he was thinking as his men came back, as he saw them return, man, I'm not going to put myself in a place of comfort when you just risked your lives to bring me this water. The most powerful line in this story is when David says, the water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. This is a powerful statement. And all of a sudden, the simple skin of water that they brought, brought back represented life. And David poured this life out before the Lord as to say, God, I'm not worthy of these men, nor are we worthy of you. But we pour out our lives before you. We hold nothing back, ready to sacrifice everything for your will and for your glory. See, when David poured out that water, it was an offering of complete surrender. It was an offering of complete sacrifice. Saying, God, I'm yours. Everything we do is yours. Everything we do is going to be for your will, for your glory. And as we sacrifice our own wants and our own desires and our own comforts, we automatically begin to impact those around us. That's right. In the moment of sacrifice, you cannot imagine how your actions will impact the lives of others in the future. You can't imagine. I mean, imagine what the world would be like if Michelangelo had said, I don't do ceilings. You know, or Noah said, I don't do boats. None of us would be here. What if Moses had said, I don't do oceans? What if David had said, I don't do giants? What if Mary had said, I don't do virgin births? <laughs> Thought I'd throw it in there. What if Esther said, man, I don't do rescues? What if John the Baptist said, I don't do baptisms? He'd have to change his name. <laughs> what if Peter had said, I don't do Gentile discipleship. I only work with Jews. What if Paul had said, I don't do letters? Would be missing half the Bible. What if Jesus had said, I don't do crosses? Everyone in history who has impacted history, biblical or secular, has made incredible sacrifices. And David's mighty three were no different. And nor are we. We will impact history. And we will impact our generation. And we will impact this city. And we will impact our schools when we are ready to make the sacrifice. One other, last thing that I see about these men, as I read that story, is these men lived outside the safe zone. They lived outside the safe zone. Passionate men. These were passionate men. They were willing to sacrifice. And they lived outside the safe zone. See, it's not natural for us to live. Or it's not natural for us to leave the safe zone. 
We like safety. We're Americans. I mean, we love our comforts. We love our security. And we love doing just enough to get by. Taking steps that require little faith on our parts is acceptable to us. Because we can do that without too much discomfort. Tell me I'm not right. That's who we are. Taking steps of faith where we are willing to risk reputation, risk popularity, how others perceive us, friendships, or even to the extent of life and death. Whoa, that's going too far, right? We're not there. I mean, we deserve to be happy. Don't we deserve to have nice things? I mean, I deserve to be able to make my own decisions. I deserve to choose my own path. I deserve to be safe. I deserve to have those possessions and the, and the stuff. And I deserve the American dream. And this is how we think. This is the line of thought that we so often take. The problem is that we've started with a wrong perception and it's caused us to go down a path of entitlement that allows us to justify our actions away. We look around ourselves and we see that he's got that, she's got this. We, people, we see him this way or we see her that way. And, man, I want to be like that. I want to be like her. I want to be like him. And I should have that stuff. And I deserve this. And we're all so far gone when we finally realize we've been living totally for ourselves in the midst of a false, deceiving culture that tells us that we deserve the comfortable, that we deserve the safe. That the worldly stuff is seen as important. And when you look at the heroes of the faith, rarely, rarely were they living in a state of comfort or safety, were they? In fact, I can't think of one. And this list could go on and on, but let's just start with a few, okay? How about Abraham? He left everything he had known to journey to a land he had never been to. That's kind of out of your comfort zone. Especially when you got to travel by mule. Noah built an ark under great ridicule, great abuse. People made fun of him, laughed at him. I mean, it had never rained on earth. And this guy's building a boat in the middle of the desert. Uncomfortable. Daniel stood for what he believed and was thrown to the lions. That's safe. Shad, rad, and bad wouldn't bow down to an idol and were thrown into a fiery furnace. That's my nicknames for him. Meshach, Shadrach, and Benjamin. Shad, rad, and bad. They were thrown into a fiery furnace. That's going to leave a mark. But it didn't. David stepped forward to slay a giant as a boy when the men cowered around him in fear. Elijah, he took on 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah alone because Ahab and Jezebel had killed all the other prophets of God. That's not great odds. But he beat them all. Esther was willing to give her life for her people as she entered the king's presence unannounced, which usually meant certain death. Benaniah chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and killed it. Jashobim, the leader of the big three, used his spear and killed 800 enemies in one battle. I'm sure that was easy. Eleazar, another of the three, stood alone with David in the middle of a barley field when the rest of the Israelite army fled and fought off the Philistine army, just the two of them. Look at Moses. Moses left Egypt, all he knew for the desert of Midian. He fled Egypt. 
And I'm sure he didn't want to leave all they'd ever known. I mean, the palace, being raised as a prince of Egypt. There's some, there's some royalty cool stuff right there going on, being prince of Egypt. I'm sure he didn't want to leave that, or the honor, and everything that comes, being, comes with being of that position. But if he wouldn't have left, he wouldn't have encountered God at the burning bush. Then after his encounter, he didn't want to leave the desert. He had known Egypt. He didn't want to leave Egypt. Now he'd gotten used to the desert for 40 years. He didn't want to leave the desert. But if he wouldn't have left the desert, he wouldn't have experienced God splitting the Red Sea and delivering Israel from Egyptian bondage. And he never would have talked to God face to face. Listen, just because you don't want to do something doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Just because you don't want to do something, just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. See, growth begins when we leave the safe zone. That's when we grow. We grow out there. We grow when we have to put all of our dependence upon God. We grow when we don't know what the heck we're doing. We're just being obedient and running for the glory of God. If you want to grow, you need to go. If you're going to grow, if you're going to grow, you've got to walk with faith. You've got to walk that way. You need to say yes to God when he presents you with that big ask. When he presents you with that question, we say yes. God, we will go. Now, I want you to watch a video for me real quick. Watch this video. It's funny to think about it now. It wasn't that long ago, but when I was younger, when I was a kid, I used to run. I used to run everywhere. Something in me. I wouldn't stop. I, I ran to my parents. I ran to my bed. I just ran. And I think, I think we're all sort of like that. We're all on fire for life with no responsibilities, just living and excited to get places. And, and then at some point, I stopped. We all stopped. We just started walking. We started coping, getting comfortable, getting content. We were no longer on fire. We were no longer passionate. There was no longer the burning desire in our hearts. But we kept walking, fitting in. And you could call it whatever you want, proper, easy, normal, but it all just seems so boring. Is this what it was about? But maybe we need to get passionate again. Maybe life isn't about being comfortable or content or making it easy. Maybe we were supposed to be different and be passionate, not lukewarm. Maybe instead of walking around and being normal, we are supposed to be radical. Maybe we're supposed to run.
Maybe we're supposed to run, right? The safe zone robs us of the greatest moments and memories. Many people are so afraid to take a risk that they spend their entire lives in Egypt, the land of not enough. A few of us are willing to get out of the safe zone, and as a result, they enter the desert, the land of just enough, where God teaches you to be fully dependent upon him. But God wants more for you still. He wants you to leave the wilderness and enter the promised land, the land of more than enough. Listen to me, 20 years from now, your biggest disappointments will be the risks you didn't take. Your biggest regrets will be those times of settling to play it safe. You will always defeat tomorrow's regret by moving forward and stepping into the face zone today. Always. I want to begin to wrap this up with this last thought tonight. Aaron can come forward or keyboard. Just think of the exploits and the accomplishments that were made by God's men, women, and teenagers throughout Scripture. Just think about the incredible things that were done. That the acts, the great exploits that changed the course of history. If you ever have anyone tell you that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, they're lying to you. They're lying to you. And if you feel safe and comfortable, then it's quite possible that you're not in the center of God's will. God will always be your peace. His presence will always be with you. But I promise you, the safest place to be is not in the center of God's will. That's usually the most dangerous. That's usually the most uncomfortable. As the young people of DSM, representative of those chosen by God, they'll bring redemption to your generation. Is it possible that we could just become passionate about God again? Where he is the one that we live for. Where he is the one that calls out our next step. Where we move like a mighty force with obedience. Like an army as one. Is it possible that we could bring ourselves to place, to a place where we're willing to sacrifice everything? That we're willing to sacrifice comfort. We're willing to sacrifice relationships, friendships, popularity, our place on the social ladder. Is it possible that a young generation could care less about that stuff and care more about what God wants to do through them about how God loves people I mean is it possible that maybe we could just take a risk for a change that we could just take a chance that we would learn to be comfortable in the uncomfortable that we would learn to step when others wouldn't dare. We learn to leap when others would think you're crazy. Where are you tonight? Are you in the center of God's will? Is it comfortable for you? Are you playing it safe? Because you can play it safe for the rest of your life. You know how much impact you'll have? Zero for the kingdom. 
Or you may have others follow you in your mediocrity. You may have others follow you in your apathy because it's easy. And instead of being surrounded by mighty warriors, mighty men who did great exploits for the kingdom of God, you'll be surrounded by a bunch of students who are full of apathy. You'll be surrounded by a bunch of young people who look like all the rest of the young people in the cultural norm. Which is a lack of passion for God, a lack of passion for prayer, a lack of passion for His movement, and a lack of passion for His people. So you can be like all the rest. You can be ordinary. Or you can embrace stepping out of the ordinary through sacrifice and become extraordinary for the kingdom. That's not going to be easy. The journey wasn't easy for any of those men of Scripture or women of Scripture that I read. cares about the journey here? Are we not eternal? Are we not eternal beings? Man, we are here for a breath of eternity. This life that you're living on this planet is a breath of eternity. It's the eternal that we live for. In fact, Scripture says we are not of this world anymore, right? We're of a different world. We're of a different kingdom. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We are ambassadors of a different kingdom. We represent another kingdom. We don't represent the kingdom of this world. We represent the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? You know what that means? When an ambassador goes to another nation, he is fully given the rights and the power to speak upon behalf of the nation he is representing. and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to speak on behalf of the kingdom of heaven, to speak on behalf of God. He will give you the words. He will give you the strength. And guys, we're missing one of the greatest experiences of our lives. He will give us the supernatural. He will give us the power to see miracles, to see healings, to see people set free. Brandon spoke it in worship tonight. That in the midst of God's presence, depression cannot stand. Self-hatred cannot stand. Sin cannot stand for long. You know, sin only has the power that you give it. The enemy has influence in your life. The only influence the enemy has in your life is the influence you give him. You have to say, here's Satan. Here's the influence of my life I'm going to give you. That's the only right he has is if you give it to him. If you don't give it to him, If you confess and reject that stuff, he has no rights to you. He has no influence over you. No sin can stand. No wrong thinking pattern can stand. No deception, no lie can stand. Nor should it be standing in a generation that has been called by God to do great exploits in this world.
ready to step into the unknown. If you are ready to make the sacrifices that will be necessary. And listen to me, don't stand if you don't mean it. If you're ready to leave the safe zone and become the young men and women who will bring revival back to our nation, who will bring God's presence back to the hallways of our schools, bring entire families back to the cross. If you will be that young people, I want you to stand where you are. Just stand up if you're ready. You can't do this on your own. You will never have kingdom-sized impact if you try to do it in your own strength. I want you just to place your hands out like this. I want you just to begin to ask God right now. Say, God, give me the courage that I'm going to need. Give me the willingness to sacrifice that I'm going to have to have. Ask God to allow the things of this world to fall way down on the priority list, on the ladder. say, God, as David poured out the precious gift that those men brought to him, that could have cost them their lives. God, I pour my life out to you now. I pour it out. I am for you, God, and for you alone. I am not of this kingdom. I am not of this world. The enemy has no hold on me. He has no rights to my life. I'm a son. I'm a daughter of the living God. I am seated at his right hand. He has given me power and authority and anointed me with the kingdom. I carry the presence of God inside of me. I carry the kingdom inside of me. God, may we be a generation tonight that says no to the mediocrity, that says no to the negative influence. May we be a generation, Father, who knows that we impact everywhere we go, every decision we make, every word that comes from our lips, God. We have have a possibility to impact a nation, to impact our generation, to impact our peers and our friends and our family. God, tonight, tonight, God, Fill me. Baptize me in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Baptize me with fire. With a desire, Father, to carry your will out. A desire for you. Not a desire for this world. Not a desire for anything that this world is offering. God, rid me of those. Eradicate that from my life. God, cleanse me. Purify me tonight. Send your Holy Spirit. Fill me. I want to be a young man or a young woman of holiness who loves righteousness. And with living in righteousness and living in holiness, that there comes power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you in power when you are living a holy life.
Heavenly Father, may we be the people you've called us to be tonight. God, we say no to the safe zone. We say no to standing in the same place. God, we say no to waiting. We say no to justifying our actions. God, we move in your spirit. God, we come back to you to get filled up, and then we head out into the world, into the unknown to give it away. Then we come back to you, God, and we get filled up again. Then we head out into the world, God, and we give it away. We come back to get filled up again, and we head out into the world to give it away. For your kingdom, God, and for your glory, we declare ourselves your people, your children, your remnant, the remaining part of this generation that is crazy about you, that is passionate about you, that is willing to sacrifice for you, God, and that is willing to not play it safe. God, tonight we live for you. We honor you. In the name of Jesus Christ, everybody said, amen. Amen. This week, here's your challenge. You've got two days of school left in this week. The more you do this, the more it will become normal. The more you do this, the more comfortable you'll be with it. The most awkward moment will be the first time you step out. But pretty soon, it's going to become fun. Pretty soon, you're going to start seeing the kingdom of heaven, man, come in your situations and what you're doing. Remember when Jesus, when he encountered people, he said, hey, the kingdom of heaven is near, bozo moron. The kingdom of heaven is near. You're looking at it. The kingdom of heaven. He carried it. He was anointed with it. And it's the same with you today. You carry it. You're anointed with it. Wherever you go, the kingdom of heaven is near and is being waiting to be poured out into that situation, into that, into that obstacle, whatever it is that you're encountering. So this week, you've got two days of school left. Do something uncomfortable. Do something unsafe. Do something that causes you sacrifice. Whether it's social sacrifice, popularity sacrifice, monetary sacrifice, whatever the case is, do something uncomfortable for the kingdom. Amen. And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did. Because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.